Welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, this morning, uh, as I was uh, walking through my vegetable garden in my backyard, I, I uh, did a little bit of interaction with uh, food toxicology. Uh, of course, I've got uh, the usual home gardener's uh, array of uh, vegetables, uh, but I noticed that along the periphery, uh, near the fence line, uh, there were some other plants, plants that I recognized as perhaps uh, being a challenge in terms of uh, food toxicology. Interestingly enough, what I noticed was uh, in, in the local ecology of, of my garden, uh, there were three types of plants, uh, all of the same uh, species. Uh, two of those uh, would uh, be a welcome addition uh, to any uh, individual's uh, uh, dinner table, yet the third one would be uh, an unwelcome poisonous plant. Uh, the three plants uh, in my garden here that I, that I brought as examples uh, are my uh, tomatoes here, and you can see the, the, the green fruits uh, of the tomato plant. Uh, tomato plants have uh, uh, been cultivated over uh, decades to reduce the amount of the uh, alkaloids, the tomato alkaloids, uh, that occur in them so that they, in fact, are a very edible uh, uh, vegetable. Uh, and uh, this, with the white flowers here, is a, uh, the tops of a potato plant, although you don't eat the, the, the tops here, uh, primarily because they do contain uh, uh, significant amounts of uh, poisonous alkaloids. Uh, we have successfully uh, developed cultivars uh, where the tuber has very low levels of these naturally occurring toxicants. And then over in the fence line, I noticed a, a very distinctive uh, purple flower uh, with uh, some green berries on it. Again, a number, another uh, member of the uh, Solani family. Uh, this is uh, commonly referred to as deadly nightshade. Uh, one of the most toxic uh, plants in North America. Uh, interesting uh, in terms of take, give it, giving us pause to kind of examine what is the relationship uh, of humans uh, to this greater ecology and especially our relationship with respect to food. The title of today's lecture, Natural Toxins in Plants and Fungi, the ecological biochemistry of food is an attempt to introduce you to some of those plant, plant, and plant and animal relationships of which as high predators, high in the food chain, we are part of our ecology. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to do is try to understand this relationship between ecology and the human food chain. We're going to try to define a term for you, a study area of ecological biochemistry. Many of us have an understanding of what ecology is, and always we also have, uh, a, uh, because of the prerequisites of this course, an understanding of what biochemistry is. What happens when we look at these biomolecules uh, in an ecological perspective? We're going to try to explain some of these biochemical adaptations that occur in nature and the roles in terms of the generation of secondary chemical compounds in plants, these phytochemicals. Uh, why are they there? What are they doing? How do they have a relationship in terms of ecological uh, adaptation and survival in biology? We're going to try to examine the impacts of plant toxicants in the human food chain. How does it uh, 
happen, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, toxicants uh, develop in the human food chain, ending in human toxicosis. We're going to survey some examples of plant toxicants. Uh, we're not going to be comprehensive in this, obviously. Uh, one could, could make a, a good part of their life a, a study of the wide range of phytochemicals and their potential for toxicosis. We'll introduce you to some just to give you, again, an example. We'll try as well to review a range of plant-based supplements. Herbs and alternative medical therapies uh, and supplements have become a large part of the American and global marketplace. It's a significant part. Uh, these products, uh, although many of them have uh, medicinal effects, are actually marketed as food and food supplements. We'll explore some of these plant compounds, uh, not only for their uh, activity, but also for the risks involved in some of their components. We'll finish up with a review uh, of a range of poisonous mushrooms. Uh, we'll dip over into uh, another life form, uh, if you will, uh, to, to explore, uh, again, not in a comprehensive way, but in an introductory way, uh, some of the risks associated with mushrooms that have compounds that are toxic to humans. Well, we want to explore the relationship of the human food chain and ecology, so we'll need a working definition of ecology. Uh, this is the scientific study of the distribution and abundance of living organisms, and this is key, the interactions between those organisms and their environment, and some of those interactions can be food interactions. The word ecology comes from the Greek uh, roots, oikos meaning household, logos meaning study. So we're studying our household, uh, perhaps. Uh, here in food toxicology, perhaps we're studying the kitchen of that household. In terms of the uh, ecological point of view of the human food chain, it's good for us to somewhat understand the concept of who eats who and what eat what, what eats what in the human food chain and think of this perhaps as a broader ecology of food. How we produce food, uh, the transit and transportation of nutrients, but also potential secondary uh, chemical compounds uh, and toxicants throughout the human food chain. This will invite a molecular level analysis, uh, and this molecular le level analysis in the ecology of food is a principal component of food toxicology. Now, in order to understand uh, the ecology of food, we have to understand the relationship of ecological biochemistry. And this is simply a coupling of the observational science uh, of ecology where we study these interactions and we take it a step further and introduce the molecular science of biochemistry. If we look at the five kingdoms as represented in this uh, figure on this slide, we can see that there are interactions and interrelationships between the five kingdoms. I'll invite you to ask and think about your last meal and how many kingdoms uh, were in your uh, diet uh, in this uh, uh, past meal. In terms of ecological biochemistry, we deal with examining the synthesis and biotransformation and transformation of chemicals in the environment. It's, it can be the result of biochemical processes within uh, an organism in terms of natural or in response to a stress. Principally, why these happen is somewhat to aid in species survival. 
Some of the interactions uh, can include a biochemical adaptation, and this can be just something where there's a biosynthesis and sometimes a bioactivation of a compound found in that animal's dietary system. There can be detoxification where, in fact, uh, uh, in terms of the chemical warfare or the biochemical warfare, if you will, between plants and plants and animals and animals, there can be a mechanism of detoxifying uh, uh, those chemical challenges. Uh, some of those processes can be by biodegradation or biomineralization, uh, sometimes, for example, with bacteria taking a potential toxicant and through evolutionary multi-generational adaptation, changing that toxicant into a foodstuff. We can also find bioaccumulation and perhaps in some cases biomagnification up a food chain. And there is a potential for uh, ecological biochemical interaction on the micro scale and also on the macro scale. Now, how does this happen in terms of biochemical adaptation? This in it comes to us from a metabolic flexibility of the living organism to fit into its environment. It will improve that organism's chances for survival. We have two types, uh, major types of biochemical adaptation. We have evolutionary, and that takes many generations uh, for a, an organism to evolve uh, the appropriate adaptation to an environmental stress. We also have acclimatization. Acclimatization is much more rapid. It's within the lifetime of the organism, and this is perhaps a low-dose response. Uh, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Our challenge as scientists is to help decipher the strategy of the natural world around us. What is going on in this biochemical warfare? How do we uh, understand this better? Perhaps how do we use this for our own survival? not only in terms of dietary survival, but perhaps to use or better use uh, the properties of nature, such as medicinals, uh, to help us uh, uh, conquer our own challenges in terms of disease. One example in terms of that is the understanding of toxic plants in our environment. Now, in terms of the relationships in ecological biochemistry, we have competitive and symbiotic interactions. So these can involve, for instance, secondary plant compounds in plant-to-plant -plant relationships and plant-to-animal relationships. We can also see animal-to-animal -animal relationships in the productions of venoms and toxins in terms of competitive in, uh, interrelationships. I put a picture here of the monarch butterfly. Um, in terms of uh, uh, ecological biochemistry, it's a classic example. The monarch butterfly, very brightly colored to let everyone, uh, in terms of predators, uh, know it's, it's there and who it is, uh, actually feeds uh, on the uh, milkweed plant. This particular plant produces uh, a wide range of uh, cardinalids and, and uh, glycosides uh, that uh, get bioprocessed by this insect. Uh, uh, not only for its own uses, but it essentially sequesters and bioaccumulates these plant toxins. Uh, these plant toxins are very bitter and poisonous. Uh, when the blue jay comes along and perhaps eats its, tries to eat its first monarch butterfly, uh, it, it uh, uh, experiences this bitter toxic taste and it learns very quickly that these brightly colored uh, uh, insects are not uh, going to be a common part of its diet. 
Now, in terms of toxins and survival strategy, uh, we need to kind of step away and, and uh, perhaps uh, examine this in a broader context. Uh, as, as organisms uh, synthesize or use toxins in their survival strategy, uh, perhaps what is the ecological and perhaps an evolutionary interpretation of these secondary plant compounds? I have a quote here from 1975, the most conspicuous non-event in the history of angiosperms is the failure of insects and other herbivores to attack plants on a wide scale. And why is this so interesting? Well, because plants dominate the landscape and thus, and thus they must be broadly uh, repellent or toxic to animals uh, in the broadest sense because they can't move. Uh, whereas herbivores, be it insects or higher animals, uh, do have the ability to move. And so there is this uh, animal-plant uh, interrelationship in terms of the struggle to survive. One of the hypotheses developed about the production of secondary plant compounds and phytochemicals is that they were developed in plants as a survival mechanism. This gives the plant an offensive and defensive uh, biosynthetic uh, capability. Uh, it can be induced in biochemical warfare, uh, but these chemical defenses are, are not only for a defensive strategy, uh, sometimes they can affect palatability. Many phytochemicals have either a good or a bad taste. It can induce bitterness or for instance, in many of the foods you eat, a palatable flavor, a desirable flavor. Uh, we're not so far off other animals that have selectivity in their diet in terms of going after specific uh, uh, types of foodstuffs because of palatability. These secondary plant chemical compounds in plants have variable structures and properties and mode of actions. There's high variation as well in where they are in the plant, whether it's uh, in the stems, roots, leaves, flowers, fruits. Uh, there can be variability not only in the stage of maturity in the plant in terms of the concentration, but also in the species and the growing conditions of the specific plant involved. What we'll do on the next few slides is actually go through several uh, lists of example uh, secondary plant compounds, phytochemicals, uh, in their broad category. Uh, in this listing, these are nitrogen compounds. We have the alkaloids, and we've learned uh, this morning about the types of alkaloids in uh, uh, potatoes, tomatoes, and in uh, a uh, toxic variety of uh, uh, solanine, uh, solani called uh, deadly nightshade. Uh, these alkaloids are toxic and bitter quite often. There's a lot of structures, about 6,500 in the plant kingdom. With toxic amines, uh, these are uh, often uh, repellent, uh, hallucinogenic. Uh, there's many categories of those. Many toxic amino acids in plants. Cyanogenic glycosides, we've learned about those, for instance, in apricot pits. Uh, and in, uh, uh, for example, English ivy. Uh, many of these uh, are poisonous as they can develop uh, uh, cyanide uh, gas in uh, gastrointestinal tract. The glucosinolates uh, are a group of compounds that are very acrid and bitter. Uh, in some cases, they have strong insecticidal activity, so they help the plant compete better. Uh, glucosinolates are, are common in the, US, uh, in the uh, uh, human diet. Uh, they give us the zing in horseradish. Uh, they uh, 
uh, give us the zinc in some of the mustards uh, that we eat. In terms of the terpenoids, another category, broad category of phytochemicals, there's about a hundred thousand, I'm sorry, about a thousand monoterpenes. Uh, these give us pleasant smells, uh, the nice smells as you walk through a pine forest. Sesquiterpene lactones, these are bitter toxic compounds. Uh, quite often you find these in uh, flowering range plants. Uh, uh, typically the bitterness makes them unpalatable and it's also a signal to grazing animals that there is probably uh, some phytochemicals that are going to be undesirable from a food toxicology point of view. There's diterpenoids, limonoids. Uh, if you've used uh, the zest of lemon uh, in a recipe the, in the skin, uh, you've exposed yourself to the bitterness of limonoids, which we use as a flavoring. Um, uh, cucurbitins. Uh, like the bitterness in a uh, uh, cucumber uh, peel. Uh, the cardinalids uh, from, for instance, uh, the milkweed, these are toxic and bitter compounds. Uh, as we saw, the monarch butterfly actually uses this particular class of compounds in their survival strategy. The carotenoids, uh, beta-carotene, gives us uh, uh, colors uh, to our uh, fruits and vegetables. We've got another broad category of phenolics. There's many of these. In terms of simple phenols, some of these are antimicrobial, helping the plant, again, compete against uh, microbes. Uh, flavonoids, some of these color compounds, there's a variety of these. Many of these have antioxidant properties that are sought after in terms of nutraceutical development. Uh, the quinones, uh, these are often uh, colored compounds. They are sometimes toxic. Uh, we'll talk here in a moment about uh, it's specific uh, quinone uh, jugalone from the walnut tree. The walnut tree uh, is an example of uh, secondary chemicals and perhaps our attempt to decipher the strategy of uh, what might be referred to as the biochemical interaction between this particular plant and its environment. The definition uh, of that interaction is allelopathy. Um, this particular uh, interaction is a broad-based study of the chemical interactions uh, in the plant and animal kingdom. Uh, since the time of ancient Greece, we have uh, noted uh, the potential toxicity of the walnut tree and its uh, uh, um, particular leaves and branches. Uh, it has been observed to kill nearby vegetation, uh, a pretty good strategy in terms of survival of that plant. It's uh, uh, toxicant, is moderately toxic to some insects, horses, dogs, and humans. In the 1500s, uh, the physicians uh, had a doctrine of signatures. This doctrine of signatures was a relationship between humans and their environment that suggested that plants that looked like organs of the human body had some sort of medicinal relationship. So, for instance, uh, the medicinal called liverwort was a plant that was shaped uh, like, that had leaves shaped like a liver, and therefore as was uh, 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 viewed by these individuals, these physicians, uh, as having a medicinal relationship to liver. Uh, the walnut was one of the uh, plant compounds uh, that were um, plant materials that was uh, in the doctrine of signatures because the walnut itself looked like the brain, uh, it was supposed that uh, this was a good medicinal for all things having to do with uh, the human brain. 
Well, the walnut tree produces a bound form of this toxin, uh, jugalone, and deposits in nearby soil uh, through uh, leaves, nutshells, stems, and roots. The way we look at this, this bound form of this toxin uh, is uh, released on leaching uh, and hydrolysis uh, with water in natural environments. Uh, the oxidation product is uh, a 5-hydroxy naphthoquinone or jugalone. Uh, this is the herbicide uh, that uh, uh, actually is a, a quite potent. Uh, next time you're near um, a walnut tree, look below it, and you'll need you'll see that. Uh, you know, if in fact this is a, a naturally uh, environment, it's not on someone's lawn where the leaves and the branches are swept up on a regular basis, then you will notice uh, perhaps an herbicidal activity uh, in terms of the relationship of this tree and the area beneath it that uh, the leaves would fall on. Well, one of the points I want to make uh, in uh, today's lecture is that when we're dealing with the human food chain, Virtually all foods and food animal feeds contain some potential naturally occurring toxicant. Okay, this is important because in our society uh, we have uh, chosen through media to perhaps uh, uh, isolate uh, natural as being good and non-toxic, and anything that man has touched is or uh, involved in synthetic processing uh, or technology uh, is bad. Uh, the human food chain uh, can and has been very toxic in history, and it will continue to be toxic in terms of uh, those that uh, are still uh, consuming perhaps on the periphery of the human food chain where there's an interaction with potential toxicants. What differentiates non-toxic from toxic in terms of uh, plants and plant materials? Uh, dose is the answer. Uh, is there sufficient concentration? And we can look at the answer to this question uh, that Paracelsus gave us, the father of modern toxicology, that the dose makes the poison. We can look at that quantitative relationship on a dose-response curve and look for that no observed adverse effect level. In terms of working up a calculated hazard or risk, uh, we can uh, do that uh, by looking at uh, how we have minimized the presence of these toxicants uh, by crop breeding and the development of various cultivars. By traditional uh, means of, uh, of development, uh, breeding, and also uh, in more recent times perhaps by biotechnology. Uh, many of the toxicants in our food system we have learned over uh, the ages uh, to avoid or uh, to make sure, for instance, that we cook uh, these particular products. Sometimes the uh, various innocuous uh, vegetables or plants in our diet uh, are, are innocuous only when cooked. An example I give on this slide is red kidney beans. Not many of us refer to red kidney beans as the toxic red kidney beans, but if you chose to eat these, not necessarily cooked, but perhaps uh, uh, sitting them in, in cold water uh, to soften them up and putting them in a bean salad, uh, you would experience a very undesirable food poisoning. Uh, there's a compound in there, phytohemoglutinin. Uh, this is a toxic lectin. Um, lectin in uncooked kidney beans, uh, it is destroyed uh, in, by cooking. Its reduction is on the order of 90 percent. 
uncooked or partially cooked uh, red kidney beans uh, can give you a very undesirable uh, toxic consequence, upset stomach, uh, and uh, uh, in some cases uh, with, with very high doses of these uncooked beans. And in children, uh, this can be a fatal outcome. Our hazard or risks in terms of our interaction with uh, phytochemicals can be modified by our dietary habits. Uh, again, these dietary habits will dictate dose. Uh, what is the serving size of a particular plant material and therefore this dose that we are exposed to? There are also going to be genetic factors. Uh, some individuals, uh, whether it be uh, uh, by uh, geographical family lineage in terms of idiosyncratic responses, or something a little bit more global in terms of a defining uh, enzyme deficiency, these genetic factors will have an influence of whether or not a, an array of secondary plant chemical compounds will present a hazard or risk uh, to that individual. There's also um, the concept of uh, adaptation uh, in terms of the ability to uh, ramp up, if you will, uh, the biotransformation mechanisms uh, uh, required to uh, consume certain uh, phytochemicals uh, that might have a toxic effect in large doses, but in small doses maybe uh, enhance, uh, for instance, various uh, uh, biotransformation enzymes and therefore enhance our tolerance perhaps for a larger dose at a future time. Now it's good for us also to stand back and look at the impact of uh, plant toxicants uh, in the human food chain. Uh, not many of us go out necessarily and graze or uh, uh, pick our own uh, salads, uh, uh, although some do. Um, livestock typically does not have this luxury, especially grazing livestock and free-range livestock. In terms of the impact of plant toxicants, uh, this is estimated at about three to four hundred million dollars uh, per year lost to producers. Uh, this is from the direct exposure to plants leading to death or illness, uh, clinical disease, loss in body weight, uh, reproductive failure, uh, and sometimes abortion in uh, uh, secondary offspring. And so this is a significant impact in terms of the relationship of the human food chain. This is an economic impact and as well a toxicosis and animal toxicosis impact in the human food chain. In terms of uh, our potential exposure via consumption of meat, uh, this impact is considered to be uh, of fairly low risk. It has a lot to do with the dilution of our meat sources, uh, the commercial uh, mechanisms of, of production and distribution and processing in the meat industry um, uh, allow for a wide geographic distribution of uh, uh, food animal resources uh, via imports, uh, via different uh, places in the United States. Uh, what happens is that from a larger or global uh, point of view, our food supply is somewhat diluted. So that even if we were exposed to some plant toxicants, uh, if it was an acute toxin, we might see something, but in terms of chronic toxicity, repeated consumption would not happen typically or necessarily in more uh, commercial meat distribution uh, uh, outlets. Uh, now if uh, an individual is doing self-slaughter, self-production of animals that are grazing uh, in a localized or confined area, and that confined area is exposed, uh, does present exposure to toxic plants, 
obviously the risk is significantly greater. In terms of the uh, impact uh, of plant toxicants in human health from drinking contaminated milk, this is plant toxin contaminated milk. Remember when we talked about uh, the processes of, uh, of uh, uh, toxicology, when we talked about biotransformation and elimination, we talked about the different mechanisms of elimination and through or via milk it is one process of potential elimination of consumed toxicants. In terms of the production uh, risk, uh, the consumption risk of, from commercial milk, this is a low risk and this has a lot to do with uh, dilution through bulk handling and also the management practices of large dairies. Uh, people will talk about corporate uh, dairies, uh, if you will, sometimes. Uh, their approach in terms of uh, food and feed management on a dairy is, uh, uh, is fairly high level. Uh, mistakes do happen. Uh, contamination and toxicosis does happen, but is a rare occurrence. Uh, at commercial dairies, uh, milk uh, from various producers is blended together. Uh, this uh, will have an overall effect of diluting uh, any uh, potential toxicant. Uh, another impact in terms of minimal risk is uh, taste factor. Uh, for those of you that ever have had free-range uh, home-produced dairy, um, if there is not good control of the feed source, uh, there sometimes can occur, for example, uh, off-tastes in the milk or in the case of uh, uh, meat animals in the meat itself. Uh, this has been observed, for instance, with the uh, animals using wild onions uh, as a grazing uh, food during, during that uh, time of the year, and the milk or meat products actually having uh, an onion odor or flavor and undesirable sensory attribute. So in a certain sense, many of these compounds uh, that uh, you know, can present uh, toxicosis and intoxication will also present uh, sensory effects uh, that are undesirable. This is not uh, always the case. In terms of plant toxin-contaminated milk, we, uh, in terms of absorption, uh, distribution, biotransformation, and excretion, uh, we learned uh, that uh, there is a potential for the interaction of uh, blood-bound toxicants in milk. Uh, the excretion of uh, toxicants into milk by lactating uh, animals is minor when compared to other routes of elimination, however, and this has uh, much to do with the blood-milk barrier that we talked about. Uh, plant toxins have been uh, detected in the milk of animals uh, grazing on toxic plants. The human health risk is generally small, again, for commercial milk because of the uh, uh, blending that occurs in large commercial dairy operations. Uh, now remember that milk is a emulsion of lipids. Uh, it's in an aqueous solution of proteins. Uh, any plant toxin or metabolite that is circulating in the blood uh, can enter the milk. Uh, these toxicants can cross the mammary cell membranes by simple diffusion, uh, and it can be carried across the blood-milk barrier, especially if it's uh, lipophilic or uh, bound to proteins. Um, some of the basic compounds, such as alkaloids, actually can be concentrated in milk because of the pH change uh, between uh, blood and milk. Uh, milk is pH 6.5 and it is more acidic than plasma. The lipophilic compounds because of the ability of the blood-milk barrier to transport more uh, lipid-like uh, molecules 
allows for a transport of these uh, uh, potential compounds as well. Now, in terms of the range of compounds or toxicants uh, that might be excreted uh, via milk, uh, trematol is one class. White snake group. We'll explore that a little bit more later in this lecture. Uh, Pyrolizidine alkaloids or PAs uh, from Senecio, uh, Amsinchia. Uh, piperidine alkaloids from conium or poison hemlock, uh, glucosinolates, uh, we've talked about uh, uh, quinolizidine alkaloids uh, from lupin, we talked about another case study. In terms of some of the risk factors associated with milk-borne toxins, obviously uh, infants and very young children uh, because of the uh, food intake to weight ratio, because of uh, immature enzyme systems, uh, are presented with a, a more significant risk. Uh, consumption of milk produced by lactating mothers who are uh, using potentially toxic herbal remedies is another vector for risk. Uh, the availability of toxic, toxic plants to grazing uh, dairy animals uh, is another factor, as is long-term health effects uh, from the various low levels of plant toxicants uh, that we might be exposed to. Uh, chronic consumption of milk uh, contaminated with specific plant toxicants. Uh, the other uh, risk is consumption directly of milk from individual animals uh, grazing on toxic plants in more of a home uh, production or local production, uh, rent-a-cow production, if you will, where this particular cow is, is actually exposed to uh, secondary plant phytochemicals uh, that have toxic properties. Now, in terms of their follow-up of impact impact of plant toxicants on human health. Uh, let's explore the consumption of con toxin-contaminated eggs. Uh, obviously, this is uh, a food animal product, um, and uh, the consumption is generally regarded as low. There's little known transfer uh, to the egg, and this has a lot to do with uh, the uh, blood placental barrier, if you will, uh, that exists. Uh, uh, in, in animals in terms of uh, isolating reproduction from potential intoxication of the parent. Um, it's not recognized as a major vector of toxin exposure. Uh, the bigger concerns about eggs have to do with uh, infectious disease uh, and foodborne pathogens. Now what we're going to do here in this segment uh, of the lecture is explore uh, a couple of plant toxins in the human food chain. chain. And the idea here is just to give you a brief overview of uh, some of the sources and pathways, uh, perhaps even the receptors uh, and the clinical endpoints of some of uh, these uh, plant toxins. At first, we'll have uh, Eupatorium uh, rugosum. This is a perennial herb. Uh, it's uh, often referred to under its common name, white snake root. Uh, it's found uh, uh, often in the eastern parts of the United States, in the Mississippi and Ohio River valleys. Uh, it's in moist, shaded, and uncultivated uh, land. Uh, the common name for the uh, clinical syndrome it produces is milk sickness because it is uh, uh, presented in the human food chain through uh, dairy products and milk products. In the early 1800s, it's been uh, estimated that one quarter to one half of the deaths in Indiana and Ohio were due to milk sickness and the presentation of this toxicant in the human food chain. Uh, it did affect even uh, Abraham Lincoln's mother, who passed away when 
uh, from milk poisoning, uh, milk sickness uh, in uh, when uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln was about nine or ten years old. I think he had uh, an aunt and an uncle uh, that died of milk uh, sickness as well. White snake root, uh, the toxins associated with it were identified in uh, 1910, Tremetrol. It interferes with the Krebs cycle and glucose metabolism. Uh, we still find uh, sporadic problems in rural areas and again uh, from uh, instances of uh, very intimate uh, uh, milk production in terms of the dairy cow living on a farm uh, and uh, having access and then the family having uh, using this particular cow and cow's milk uh, over a long period of time. It is a cumulative problem. It is a fat-soluble uh, uh, lipophilic compound, uh, and so there is a chronic exposure concern. Uh, the risks uh, from uh, white snake root uh, associated with milk, that the toxins are uh, excreted by the cow, so the uh, cow is actually not affected. Uh, this particular toxin is not destroyed during pasteurization. It's fat-soluble, so it can actually collect in the butter in high concentrations. Uh, in meat, uh, we find that it has a fairly long half-life in terms of uh, animals that have been grazed free-range, perhaps exposed to this particular uh, toxic plant, and then brought into uh, a uh, feedlot uh, in terms of uh, uh, changing the uh, overall diet of the animal and therefore the flavor of the meat. Clinical signs of white snake root, uh, weight loss, listlessness, weakness, tremors, collapse, uh, death within days to weeks. In the case of Lincoln's mother, uh, it took months, uh, and this is uh, uh, an uncomfortable toxicosis. The next category of plant toxins, the solanum, and this is uh, lycoparasicon. Uh, these uh, come from uh, nightshades, plants, uh, potato plants, eggplants, uh, tomato plants, as I introduced uh, earlier today. Uh, these are uh, in categories of food, uh, noxious weeds, uh, ornamentals, and in some cases uh, herbal medicines. Uh, they can be annuals or perennials. Uh, there's about a hundred species uh, of solanum. Uh, the poisonings in people have uh, been uh, documented through the consumption of berries, uh, consumption of impacted tubers with sprouts, for instance, potato tubers, uh, and leaves and stem of these particular plants, the non-edible uh, components of these plants. The toxins include glycoalkaloids. Uh, these are anticholinergics, uh, saponins uh, that exist in uh, uh, these uh, plants. Uh, some of the uh, compounds, uh, the alkaloids, uh, solanidine, uh, tomatidine, solanidine, tomatine, uh, chaconine, and solanine. Uh, and uh, the difference in the names has to do whether or not there is uh, the sugar group still on the alkaloid. Uh, these alkaloids are heat stable. Uh, the flowers contain more than the sprouts. Uh, the peel and the eyes contain more than the uh, shoots or the tubers. Uh, there is an increase with greening, and so what your mother told you about not eating green potatoes is true. Uh, there is a decrease uh, in maturity. So young uh, uh, sprouts of these plants, uh, for example, when livestock escape into uh, a potato patch, uh, uh, there is a strong potential for toxicosis from grazing on the green parts of these plants. 
The uh, clinical presentation is digestive and neurological problems, nausea, vomiting, cramping, and uh, diarrhea, muscle tremors, uh, staggers, uh, weakness in animals, uh, the consumption of blighted potatoes uh, in Ireland uh, historically has led to uh, fetal deformities, uh, so there is uh, teratogenesis potential from uh, these uh, secondary plant chemical compounds. The next category uh, of uh, uh, plant chemicals is the PAs, or pyrrolizidine alkaloids. Uh, they come from the uh, genera of Senecio, uh, for example, Msychnia, Synchia, uh, and uh, these are hepatotoxic uh, alkaloids. Uh, they are found uh, in, they can be found in meat residues, uh, in milk residues. Uh, uh, because of the interaction of uh, insects and plants in terms of pollination, uh, they can also be found in honey residues of areas where these types of plants grow. They're found in various herbal teas uh, historically and currently, uh, and in many diet, not many, uh, several dietary supplements. Uh, the risk in terms of acute toxicosis is typically low. Um, chronic toxicosis is a little bit more of a problem. Uh, for example, home slaughter of animals uh, bred on the farm where they do have chronic exposure to plants containing pyrrolizidine alkaloids and uh, the chance to impact the local food chain. Uh, PAs uh, are hepatotoxins. They're uh, responsible for a venoocclusive disease uh, it found in uh, we can find this in, in uh, chronic consumption of herbal teas. Uh, many of these plants are used uh, in wound healing, uh, like comfrey. Uh, its astringent properties are fine for uh, external use only. They're not good as uh, comfrey tea. Um, they, they're found occasionally in dietary supplements. Uh, they are um, somehow um, also known uh, as uh, anti-cancer compounds and com remedies in turn of dietary supplement markets. Uh, they can be found as a contaminant in cereal grains and some bread products. This, if you recall, was the metabolic profile for pyrrolizidine alkaloids. We have this general uh, alkaloid bicyclic uh, formate, uh, hydrolysis uh, and uh, to retronesine, uh, and then finally uh, hydroxyhex-2-enol, which is a chemical compound that can be bound to liver tissue and is probably responsible for the hepatotoxicity that we observe with PAs. The pyrrolizidine alkaloids uh, are regarded as mutagenic, teratogenic, fetotoxic, and carcinogenic. We've seen uh, epidemiological relationships between uh, senecio and liver neoplasia uh, in various populations in South Africa. This is a picture of Tansy Ragwort, uh, a member of the senecio family. Another uh, plant toxin is the bracken firm. Uh, this is uh, Teridium aquilinium. Uh, the, there's worldwide distribution in terms of this particular plant. Uh, it's used uh, in the production of flour from its rhizomes in Europe, New Zealand, and Australia. The fronds or the croziers, the top part of the plant, uh, uh, is found uh, in uh, Japan, Hawaii, and Brazil, uh, eaten fresh, cooked, and preserved. Uh, there is a potential in terms of grazing animals uh, for meat and milk contamination. The toxin is uh, tocilicide. Uh, it's carcinogenic. It's uh, known to 
be linked to esophagus, stomach, and uh, white blood cell cancer or leukemia. Uh, there's been epidemiological linking of esophageal tumors in Japan. This brings us to uh, the uh, quick examination of uh, herbs and supplements uh, as uh, a plant food in the human food chain. Uh, in 1994, Congress passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, DSHEA. Uh, essentially, it for the first time uh, actually created a different category for these supplements, uh, referring to them as food products, not as medicinals. Uh, drug manufacturers that produce medicines have to prove their products are safe under DSHEA. Um, the FDA has to prove that a product is unsafe before uh, commanding it off the market. Uh, this may take years, and so there's potential exposure during the appearance of a product and its impact on human populations. Um, many folks are seeking uh, complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, under survey, this represents about 36% of adults in the U.S. Uh, about 19% uh, actually will use natural products. And in 1997, this marketplace was 36 to $47 billion. Uh, this is a, a fairly large uh, part of the uh, health economy. A uh, recent incident in December uh, 2003, FDA banned ephedra products uh, from the marketplace. These are typically uh, were marketed as weight loss aids, uh, energy supplements. Uh, uh, earlier that year, a 23-year-old Major League Baseball pitcher, Steve Beckler, actually died uh, from uh, ephedrine, uh, the active compound in these ephedra uh, dietary supplements. Uh, these products, although uh, you won't find them on the shelf uh, in the uh, marketplace, uh, they still are uh, available over the Internet. Um, in the previous five years, uh, from 2003, there were almost 15,000 adverse events reported from ephedra use. Uh, it included 18 heart attacks, 26 uh, strokes, 43 seizures, and five deaths. In terms of uh, how the dietary supplement market has responded to uh, the removal of ephedra, ephedrine containing ephedrine, which is very close to amphetamine uh, and methamphetamine in terms of its chemical structure, uh, two products have appeared, bitter orange, which is synephrine, and green tea extract, which contains uh, caffeine and catechins um, in terms of uh, uh, stimulant activity. Another herbal that uh, uh, is significant in the U.S. marketplace, it's the second most popular herb with annual sales of about a, over $100 million, is St. John's wort. It has uh, a, a remarkable use uh, in history over centuries uh, to treat mild to moderate depression. Uh, there's many active ingredients, uh, hypericin, hyperforum uh, are two of them. Uh, this is a fairly common herbal. Uh, some of the concerns associated with St. John's wort include its uh, induction of the cytochrome P450 metabolic pathway. Uh, this is an important pathway, and so, for instance, if you are on uh, a uh, sustaining medication, for instance, contraceptives or heart medication, uh, induction of this pathway will speed up metabolism of the drugs that you are taking 
decrease the therapeutic concentration and so you won't have the benefit of these uh, very expensive medicines that you are on. So this is one of the precautions about St. John's wort. Uh, as well, uh, there seems to be a photochemical, uh, uh, photophytotoxic reaction uh, and there is recommendations that uh, you do not go out in the sun when you're using this product uh, for prolonged time periods. Some other plant supplements, and this is a collection of pretty much just names and outcomes. These are uh, plant supplements that uh, are of concern because of the potential for toxicosis, especially with chronic use. Uh, the uh, clinical literature has many citations about various sorts of human disease endpoints associated uh, typically with chronic uh, use of these plant supplements. Uh, Aristocholic acid uh, uh, found in Aristocholachia, um, carcinogens, kidney failure, uh, chaparral, uh, you can uh, search uh, mortality and morbidity weekly and find uh, in, uh, incidences of liver um, hepatotoxicosis associated with chaparral uh, in California. Uh, lobelia yields uh, uh, clinical respiratory challenges, low blood pressure, uh, and heart rate, diarrhea, dizziness, and death. Uh, Germander uh, has uh, uh, a toxic uh, impact on the liver. Uh, kava root, which is popular uh, as a tea, uh, has a potential for liver damage. I've given a 1937 quote from the book Savage Civilization uh, about the, the writer's uh, uh, interpretation of his first experience with kava root tea. Your head is affected most pleasantly. Thoughts come clearly. You feel friendly, never cross. You cannot hate with kava in you. Uh, pennyroyal oil, uh, yielding liver and kidney damage uh, in chronic use. Skullcap, uh, liver damage. Uh, Yohimbi bark, uh, it's used uh, uh, to deal with uh, impotence. Um, there's been observations of drop in blood pressure, heart arrhythmias, and heart failure associated with Yohimbi use. Well, the next segment uh, of the lecture, we're going to cross over into uh, the world of fungus uh, and talk a little bit about mushroom toxins. Now, mushroom poisoning is caused by the consumption of raw or cooked uh, the fruiting bodies, the mushrooms or toadstools, of a number of species of higher fungi. Uh, the term toadstool actually comes from the German uh, translating uh, death stool, toadstool. Uh, and uh, what we find in terms of the interaction of uh, humans and uh, fungus uh, is that there is no real clear rule of thumb uh, to identify edible mushrooms uh, from poisonous toadstools. And so uh, the recommendation I will tell you all is that if you are not an expert or not with an expert, to avoid uh, uh, picking your own mushrooms uh, in your next nature hike. Uh, most mushrooms that cause poisoning uh, cannot be made non-toxic by uh, processing or cooking. Uh, and the only way to avoid intoxication is by avoiding the mushrooms themselves. Mushroom poisoning occurrence occurs uh, mostly when uh, mush wild mushroom hunters, uh, and uh, especially novices, mistakenly identify, misidentify, and uh, consume a toxic species. Sometimes we have incidents where recent immigrants uh, to the United States or to the Americas 
see a species, uh, a, a, a type of mushroom that resembles one that uh, that was edible in their native land, uh, and in fact, uh, the difference of species uh, uh, might actually uh, in, have a, a toxic impact. We also find uh, individuals that uh, desire uh, the neurotoxic effects of several species of mushrooms, uh, and uh, there can be poisoning associated with uh, uh, the psychotropic uh, aspects of mushrooms as well as the uh, intoxicating aspect of these types of mushrooms. Uh, we can take the physiological effects of mushroom toxins and put them into four broad categories. Uh, these categories uh, are protoplasmic poisons, and these result in a generalized destruction of cells. Uh, and this is typically followed by organ failure. These are the most deadly uh, class of category of mushrooms. Uh, the neurotoxic uh, effects of, uh, of the next category of mushrooms cause neurological symptoms such as profuse sweating, coma, convulsions, hallucinations. Uh, these are the psychedelic uh, mushrooms, perhaps, if you will. And then the next category is the GI irritants. Uh, these will produce rapid transient nausea, vomiting, uh, abdominal cramping, and diarrhea. And then the final class is uh, a class of uh, mushrooms that have disulfram-like uh, toxins. Uh, these uh, toxins actually act like the medicinal compound uh, disulfram um, it, in that it interacts in a very, very aggressively negative way. Uh, f when alcohol is consumed uh, within about uh, a day or two of consumption of these mushrooms. Now, the protoplasmic uh, poisons associated with mushroom toxicosis, uh, one of the examples is mushrooms containing cyclic peptides. Uh, again, this is the most deadly category. Uh, for example, uh, amanita or um, death caps in this particular uh, image. Uh, these uh, mushrooms are associated with roots of trees. They produce uh, amatoxins and phallotoxins. These inhibit uh, nuclear RNA polymerase and protein synthesis. Uh, there is a delayed onset uh, characteristic of protoplasmic poisons as opposed to some other mushroom toxins. It targets the gastrointestinal tract, the kidney, and the liver, and there's about a 50 to 90 percent death rate with a large enough dose uh, with this particular type of mushroom. This particular type of mushroom is the one that you uh, see perhaps uh, in the cinema associated with mushroom uh, uh, toxicosis. Uh, and one of the ways, one of the reasons it was popular for uh, criminal poisoning is because of the delayed onset of symptoms. A nice mushroom soup today uh, would not bring on toxicosis perhaps uh, until about 6 to 40, uh, 48 hours with an average of about uh, 6 to 15 hours. Uh, so the patient doesn't show symptoms in this early stage. At the end of the, this, this early stage, you find uh, the individual with a sudden severe uh, seizure of abdominal pain, persistent vomiting, vomiting and watery diarrhea, uh, extreme thirst, and lack of urine production. Uh, if the individual survives this particular phase, uh, they may recover for a short period of time, but uh, this period will be followed by a rapid and severe loss of strength, prostration, and pain-caused restlessness. Uh, the, this will be followed uh, by death in about 50 to 90 percent of the cases from progressive and irreversible liver, kidney, cardiac, and skeletal muscle damage. 
uh, and the disease may last uh, six to eight days uh, of uh, a very painful uh, uh, presentation, four to six days in children. Two or three days after the onset uh, of this latter phase, due to, to multi-organ failure, uh, the individual uh, is jaundiced, uh, cyanotic, and uh, uh, experiences coldness of the skin. Uh, death is usually f uh, follows uh, a period of coma and occasionally convulsions, a very unpleasant uh, uh, toxicosis. Uh, uh, and again, this is the one that's characterized typically in terms of the major risk of uh, mushroom toxins. The next class of uh, uh, category of mushroom toxins are the neurotoxins. For example, the ibotenic acid and uh, muscimol um, toxins. Uh, these are from the Amanita class as well, such as the Amanita muscaria, uh, or fly agaric, a very colorful mushroom uh, that you may have seen in nature. Uh, looks like a fairy mushroom, if you will. Uh, the toxins are neurotransmitters. Uh, these are uh, typically uh, regarded as uh, false neurotransmitters. Uh, uh, and uh, in terms of uh, physiology, these compounds have helped us actually understand uh, neurological ph physiology. It affects serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine, and its effects in terms of its uh, psychotropic effects are similar to those of LSD. The onset comes 30 to 90 minutes after consuming. The peak happens in about two to three hours. There's some initial abdominal discomfort. The symptoms include dizziness, drowsiness, and hyperactivity, excitability. Fatalities rarely occur in adults, although overdose in children has been observed. Next categories of mushroom toxins are the GI irritants. There's many types of mushrooms that will produce this. Uh, the one I have pictured here is the jack-o'-lantern. This is different uh, from the first category uh, in that we have rapid onsets of clinical uh, signs and symptoms. It's an emetic, uh, so there's uh, uh, vomiting and diarrhea uh, involved. It's short-lived. Uh, it's rare that it is fatal, and the fatalities that do occur uh, occur because of dehydration. Clinical therapy and treatment uh, is focused on hydration and emesis. The final uh, category of mushroom toxins is the disulfram-like toxins. Disulfram, under its uh, uh, commercial name, Antabuse, uh, is uh, a chemical compound uh, that is taken by people who are alcoholics. Uh, this particular chemical circulating in your bloodstream uh, makes, uh, gives you alcohol aversion. You become very sick if you consume uh, alcohol. Uh, what happens uh, with this particular mushroom, which is regarded as an edible mushroom, it's edible if you don't follow it with that nice class of Chianti. Um, there are no illness results when eaten in the absence of alcoholic beverages for a period of about 72 hours. Uh, this particular uh, uh, mushroom that's pictured here, the inky cap, is the dominant uh, mushroom in this category. Uh, it has an unusual amino acid that I've pictured here, uh, coprine. This particular compound is converted to a cyclopropanone hydrate in the human body, and this particular compound is the one that interferes with uh, alcohol metabolism. 
So this is uh, uh, a toxic syndrome that if you do consume alcoholic beverages, you'll have a headache, nausea, vomiting, flushing, and cardiovascular disturbances, not a good occasion. So uh, the risk in here is consumption of alcohol uh, uh, following uh, the uh, consumption of this particular mushroom. Well, that gives you uh, uh, a, uh, something to think about, I guess, uh, in terms of what we've tried to discuss today in the concept of the ecology of food. We tried to at least visit the uh, propagation of plant toxins, these secondary chemical compounds uh, in the human food chain. Uh, the next time uh, we visit, what we'll do is actually talk uh, a little bit more of, about uh, the fungal kingdom and talk about uh, toxic mold and mycotoxins. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.